Useless, useful, short little posts. So I'll mention that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's kind of a double pick. We'll reverse reverse it out on Greg. Well, instead of having you know two picks each, we'll have one pick by two people. Blow his own mind up. So hey everybody, welcome to episode 132 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario and I'm joined by Mark Rubin in San Jose, California. Hello. And we also have Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? Hey, it's going good. So we have some new patrons on Patreon. Think, give them a shout out. We do. We have um, Sean Marston and Wade Trigaskis or Trigaskis. I'm not really sure. I apologize for saying that incorrectly if I have, but... Thank you to both of you, in any case, for sponsoring the show. It really helps. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Sean's, uh, I think he's been a regular, yeah, I think he even has a t-shirt he was telling me on uh, Twitter. Big fans, thanks for thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks. All right, so uh, we have some FU. Um, first of all, I put up a post here that Apple has ordered 160 million iPhone OLED screens uh, from Samsung, interestingly enough. Uh, this is on the Fox News uh, website. Um because, you know, the rumors about the iPhone 8 are um, the inductive charging and a number of other things. But one of the things that we've talked about before is whether it'll have an OLED screen or not. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, it, it's probably really hard to hide 160 million um, of anything that you might order. So this one seems to be, like, you know, fairly realistic. Right? I mean, at this point... So how many they phones do sh- you think they'll sell? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wow, I wonder what that match was. So they'll sell, what, like 15 to 20 mil first quarter and then second, third. So what do they average, like 70, 70-ish million per year? Something like that, yeah. Something like that, yeah, yeah. yeah. So interesting, interesting numbers. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that's got to be at least a, a billion-dollar order. I don't know exactly how much these screens cost to buy the parts, but I figure it's got to be at least 10 bucks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Right. And that does follow up from our talking about, you know, what will the impact be of, of the OLED stuff. So I would guess that if Apple's picked it up, they must have sort of resolved the concerns we had around color accuracy and they feel that it's good enough now. So keep an eye on this one. Oh, it actually, yeah, says, also, it actually says in the article, it's a, it's a $4.3 billion order. Which means wow. It's, yeah, it means it's about 30 bucks, a little under 30 bucks per screen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Cool stuff. And the other point, the other thing I posted here was about uh, new iPads. Um, again, coming from some pretty strong rumors. But one of them, interestingly enough, is a 7.9, I think it is, inch, you know, um, um, iPad mini format uh, Pro version. So iPad Pro with pencil support, I would assume. So that's kind of interesting. So the iPad mini, but refreshed with new internals and with Apple Pencil support. That what I'm hearing four speakers, you know, 12 megapixel camera, smart connector, two tone display. Oh, that is interesting. Cause like, so now it's like the iPad pro mini iPad pro micro, because you could already say the mini version is the 9.7 version. Like the, right. the naming is going to go a little weird, but I think it'd be great because I'm, uh, I'm at the very least looking to upgrade from my iPad air two to something new that can support the Apple pencil. And I, I waited a little bit because I said, mm, I didn't see enough out of last year's 9.7 Pro. And 
this year's 9.7 Pro unless, you know, it, like, shocks you or profanes you every day or something. Like, they're going to have my money for this one come March. Right, right. Yeah, I'm probably due for one, too. I have an Air, iPad Air 2 as well. And they're also also in the same post, is, uh, they talk about iPhone SE having a 128 uh, gigabyte version. So I guess a refresh of that. And as we predicted, that the iPhone 7 will slide down to a sort of a uh, plus, or I guess no, iPhone 7 plus. But I read somewhere that um, iPhone 7 will become, or heard it somewhere, I guess, that iPhone 7 will become like the S, the S model kind of thing as well. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And you guys were saying that uh, last week, I think that, the iPad 8 could, or sorry, iPad, iPhone 8 could be uh, uh, over $1,000, right? Not for the base model. So that's that there would be um, some other oh, ed- edition okay. of it, right? So you'll have like your normal ones and then you'll have the like, oh, by the way, here's like the edition. If you think of it like the watch edition okay. version Maybe of ceramic, it. Yeah. Or, or, <laughs> or whatever. I mean, like, like it could be anything that it could be filled with gold it could be filled with you know <laughs> leprechauns or something I, I don't know something somehow that's like nicer that that um you know that or, or maybe is limited edition or something that warrants a higher price for whatever reason uh, especially because it's the anniversary year the 10 year anniversary which right, right. seems not unreasonable and then this article here they're talking about a red variant of the iphone 7 and, and 7 plus so year by year we're getting more and more colors so, a red one. Oh yeah. Yeah. So Jim, did you hear? Did you say that, that you heard a rumor that the iPhone Seven was going to move down into the SE slot? I can't remember. I think I heard it on a post on a podcast somewhere or oh. read it somewhere. Yeah, sort of. You know that the eight would be the sort of premier one, and the seven would move yeah. down because the six is going to have to go away, right? Six lines, and six and six S. Right. Right. It, it'd be real yeah. interesting though if they if they killed off the small screen though, because that that would be the last small screen model out there. Which one, the SE? The SE. Well, no, that's what they're saying. There, there's a rumor of a 128 gigabyte model coming out, right? Because don't forget they remade that one with the iPhone 6 guts in it, right? Mm-hmm. Because for the people who wanted that that small iPhone 4 uh, form factor, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, okay, so you're saying, yeah, okay, I, I get what you're saying. You're saying that the, the iPhone 7 just moves into the lower price slot, not in the lower, not in the right. actual SE slot. Yeah. Okay. No, no, the SE, the SE becomes the, the yep. st- remains the smallest model, but mm-hmm. with, a, with, mm-hmm. a, with an upgrade. I mean, some of the people I had ta- heard talk about it back in the day uh, when it came out was thinking that they were, it was going to be a while before they're going to even update that model, you know, with new features and things like that. But it sounds like they, they may be tweaking it a bit, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, at least according to this article, the tweaking is just on the storage side, though. It sounds like the internals remain um, similar to the success. Uh, underneath the covers right right mm-hmm. yeah yeah and, and that you know that particular device is it's kind of a, a hot rod because it's it's got such a tiny screen but a massive processor massive gpu that is kind For of sure, yeah. sitting there idling just chewing up anything you send at it they're, they're actually pretty pretty fast from what i've seen um so last week uh, when mark and i were touring around san jose and cupertino i got a chance to see the the uh, an enormous Apple Park, uh, also known as Spaceship um, um, Campus that they're building, it is huge. Like you know, I you know, 
pictures don't do it. Images we see on the web don't do it justice. It's like something out of a sci-fi movie, kind of, you know, as you're standing in front of it, one side disappears into the horizon and the other side disappears into the horizon. And, and even taking pictures of, with my my phone through the hoarding um, didn't do it any justice either. So it's a huge building, especially in that kind of area, right? Mm-hmm. Mark? Yeah. yeah. Yep. There's nothing that big. I mean, there's buildings that tall, but not spread out like that, right? Uh yeah, I mean, it's certainly right around over there. Yeah, I mean, there may be some bigger ones around, but but uh, uh, but right in that area, that's actually sort of a, a residential area, um, except for a hospital that's right next to it. So this this definitely stands out in that area for sure. But it looks like it's going to now open in April, and uh, you uh, you alluded to the new name there, Tim. It's actually officially going to be called Apple Park, and there'll be a Steve Jobs conference conference room or something in there. Right, right. Looks like the thousand seat hall, the Steve mm-hmm. Jobs Theater. There, that I think I've seen the name bandied about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it should be pretty exciting, and and it looks like uh, the our speculation that one at least one of the reasons for moving WWDC down to San Jose would be to show off the new building may actually be right. true if it's if it's opening in April. Well, it's also difficult to get a thousand uh, engineers up to San Francisco for the week or for on and off. So it's probably now they're closer to home. They could you know. Because, I mean, Cupertino and San Jose, San Jose are, like, right next to each other practically, right? Oh, so. yeah, for sure. Oh, there, there's a whole lot of good reasons for moving it down here. I mean, just the one you mentioned, just the cost of moving the engineers around and the ease of use of, of moving the engineers around. Not to mention that the cost of people attending. You know, hotels are certainly a little bit cheaper down here. Right, uh, yeah. And uh, uh, so, yeah, so there, there's lots and lots of good reasons for moving it down here. It, it loses a little bit of the the wow factor that San Francisco gives you, you know, getting people to travel from far away because San Francisco is such a tourist destination. But but maybe that's actually a good thing because maybe people will spend more time focused on the conference instead of going off and doing other touristy things. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. And it is only an hour up the road. It is only an hour up the road. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Unless, sure. unless there's a big rainstorm like we have here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And actually, I saw another note uh, as I was just getting ready for the show that Tim Cook apparently has announced he's going to move into Apple Park as, as soon as this opens as well. Mm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Did he say where? Because it says here, I'm reading the very last paragraph, Apple bought the property from Hewlett Packard and preserved a century-old barn that has remained on it as the property changed wow. hands over the last huh. hundred years. So I don't know if you guys have ever seen this old house. I mean, sure, they, yeah. they generally, yep. you know, with you know, Bob Vila used to be the host, and I don't know who the host is now. I haven't watched it in, in probably more than a decade. But normally they would have a, like, you know, a reasonable you know house that they would then, you know, modify in some way. Maybe they add a second floor or they add a basement or something or they renovate it. The craziest one I ever saw was where they essentially rebuilt the entire darn house, except for, like, <laughs> one little room somewhere that was like, oh, technically this is a renovation, not a you know, complete overhaul and, and rebuild. Right, right. And I wonder if that's where this falls underneath on that. Because it seems a little weird that they would have kept this barn around for the last hundred years as it's changed hands. I wonder if, you know, for tax you know, purposes zoning, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. zoning yeah. Or, or, or property licenses or some other sort of thing. It's like, for legal reasons, this is technically a renovation on this whole <laughs> barn, <laughs> this massive multi-million dollar <laughs> park. I wonder, yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to say they're going to put Tim Cook in the barn or something like that. Well, I mean, he is a, he is a southern man, so maybe he feels like, you know, I just got to get away from everything. I don't want any devices. I just want to go chill and watch some videos, you know, some Apple Music, 
you know, playing in the background as he's just kind of doing whatever it is he does in the barn. Just, you know, relax, get away from everything. Well, it's, it's funny. You can see in the video that's there, in the, I think, on this article. Um, but they have, and I saw these for, for real when Mark and I were there, they have um, live, like, huge trees, like 30-, 40-year-old trees in big, giant pots, and they've been putting placing them around the campus like Lego pieces, you know, to make it look like it's already fleshed out sort of thing mm-hmm. with, with uh, forest and stuff. And apparently they're going to be preserving all that kind of stuff as well. So so should I talk about my trip to Apple itself? You know, they, they basically said that... Um, all the executives are in building number one and, and Steve Jobs' office is still there and it's been there like that since he left. So, and they're going to preserve it there. Apparently it's going to stay there. So, kind of cool. I wonder if there will be a certain amount of time after which they'll bring people by Steve Jobs' office on the tours and hmm. the, and the amount of time they have to wait is for anything that he might have had written on his whiteboard or anything like that either oh, has right, either yeah. has happened or has been you know, deprecated. So there's, there's, as, there's no more secrets rather than erasing right. it. Right. They have to wait until mm. the secrets run out before they let people in there. Right. Yeah. I guess they could do it if they wanted to preserve it so that people aren't like, you know, smudging the whiteboard or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever come out to the uh, museum of flight here in Seattle, but they'll have historical things like the old um, air force ones that uh, I think like Kennedy and Johnson used. And you can go in there and they have them like behind glass pieces. So like you're inside the vehicle, but like, you know, the president's ready room is, is behind glass and, and in some cases it's like completely partitioned off as a room. And in other cases you can walk into the room, but like, you know, the telephone that he used to talk to Gorbachev or something was like, or maybe not Gorbachev, Khrushchev, um, is like behind glass. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The space shuttle or Skylab is like that in, um, in the, uh, museum in, in smithsonian and all the space capsules are all in, in, encased in like a acrylic box if you will so you can sort of you know whether it's shaped like a mercury capsule or whatever but you can't touch the actual piece but you know they, they leave them with the space dirt on them and all that kind of stuff so i wonder if they're in a nitrogen atmosphere so that the they don't they don't erode or decay or anything no i think they're they're kind of they're kind of open but they're but you can see that they're you can't you know there's nowhere to put your finger through and touch the actual mercury capsule but mm. And there are, I mean, in in the actual uh, hangar out by um, Dulles Airport, they're they're actually not uh, hidden away, but you really can't go and you can't really go very close to them and stuff. But you can touch the planes and stuff like that in there if you can reach them. But you can't you can't like there's a uh, a barrier around the space shuttle. You can't go touch it, but you can get pretty close to it. But I think anywhere where there's high traffic, they put a piece of acrylic between you and and the piece, right? Yeah. All right, so the next piece we've got posted here is about, uh, Mark put it up here, about uh, iOS 10 uh, at 80% adoption already, right? Yeah, so according to Apple's website, uh, where they post these statistics, uh, iOS 10 is actually at 79%. Uh, iOS 9 is still at 16%, and earlier is, is still sitting at 5%, which is, which is pretty good, considering it's only been out maybe three months now. Uh, that's pretty much 80% adoption. And at the same time, uh, we've reported on this that Mixpanel posts their own statistics that always tend to run a little bit higher than, than Apple's. And in fact, it's it's true now as well. They're quoting 88% iOS 10. So pretty dramatic, I mean, uptake on these on the, on the usage of, of these new uh, versions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being under six, what are we, five, five, five and a half-ish months now. So that's still pretty good. Um, fantastic seeing these, this uptake happen. 
Um, it's definitely a, a testament to the way that Apple has sort of changed things uh, post the iOS 8 debut, where it was very difficult yeah, for people to upgrade, right. like physically difficult for people to upgrade given the storage it required and what storage they had. So yeah, the incremental updates has helped. Was iOS 8 the one that had some pretty major bugs? Like you couldn't make calls? Some people? Yeah, that that was for like yeah. a like a day, I think, mm-hmm. and that was for like people. I think the plus was plus, and the six were the new ones at the time, I think. And there was a, a point oh one update that blew up, you know, phone calling and and some other feature that escapes me at the moment. Right, but there was also the issue of, as Hami said, if you tried to do the update on the device itself, like the over the air update, and um, you didn't have enough free space. You couldn't update it, but mm-hmm. uh, so you have to go. You'd have to resort to using iTunes to update it if you wanted to work that way, or pitch a whole bunch of stuff off your phone to make room for it. So. Right. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, this is inter- nine was nine's adoption was pretty quick, com- relatively speaking, and so was uh, and so is ten apparently now. So how long's ten been out for? Since uh, well, six was months, I guess. October right? October or November? I forget. Looks like yeah. middle of September ish. September. So. Yeah. A little bit less than six, so five and a half months right now. Um, right. So looking at this, so like you can absolutely have iOS nine as your baseline um, if you're dealing with a legacy app mm-hmm. um, that gives you um, what stack views. It gives you uh, layout anchors, all sorts of nice auto layout st- uh, stuff that'll be there. Um, Story I definitely uh, references. One of my oh yeah, that's right, right. right. And then folks need to start thinking about. Like, okay, for, for new apps, of course, you really should just be targeting 10 because it won't be worth it, you know, over time to to deal with 9. And for existing apps, you know, I would think probably a good idea to start talking to whoever it is that you need to convince that, like, hey, we should start thinking about migrating our users off of <laughs> iOS 9 and make 10 the baseline um, and just continue marching things forward. Mark, you posted something here called Wither Swift. Yeah, so this was an article by... Guy named uh, Jeff Johnson, who is a developer of Underpass, he has written an article entitled Wither Swift, which is kind of interesting and it's definitely worth a read. So basically, his question that he's asking uh, is, what's the future of Swift versus Objective C? Uh, is it is it true that Swift and Objective C are going to coexist side by side pretty much indefinitely, or is Apple going to kill off Objective C? Uh, and make Swift the only option? Uh, or, crazy as it may sound, is it possible that Apple could even kill off Swift and stay with Objective-C as its primary language? And he makes some interesting points as to why the last one may not be as crazy as it sounds. And he talks about how within Apple itself, there hasn't been actually a lot of adoption of Swift for their own code. In fact, almost everything is still done in Objective-C. And so if, for whatever reason, Apple had to make the decision, uh, not saying that they would have to make this, but if they have to ever, ever had to make the decision to kill off one of the two, well, which would be better for Apple? And his argument is that, well, it would be better to keep Objective-C and kill off Swift because uh, of the amount of work internally it would take to, to convert everything over to Swift. So this is just kind of a, a straw man. You know, he's not actually... Uh, saying this is going to happen, or even that you know there's a high likelihood of this happening, but but it's interesting to read because it's uh it, it's it's not as clear that Swift is as dominant as it seems, uh, at least within Apple. So right, have you guys had a chance to read this? I read I read most of it. I haven't gone all the way through it, but yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
like it does make a bit of sense so if you view things from like apple's perspective and if for whatever reason they're like you know what this this swift thing just isn't going to work for us um i think he's quite right in that it's relatively painless as far as their software development goes for them to make the switch is not really clear that there's much of anything that they've written in swift and, and anything they have they could just re-react that in objective c if they really needed to right if they wanted to do a grand purge of swift from everything mm-hmm. i can see you know why they wouldn't have gone too far into swift at the moment because it's probably we would be much too expensive for them to do so while it continues to change i think once things stabilize in swift and it's not changing dramatically it would be easier for them to start using it sort of internally for you know, various bits of the platform or their own products. But when I look at it now and, and just look at like the migrations, like you just lose too much productivity um, dealing with the migrations, at least in my opinion. So you're, you're guaranteed to lose, you know, a couple days and maybe more like the one I've seen was like two weeks, but I don't know the particulars for, for that person that, um, that I know on Twitter. And that's, there's just no way Apple can deal with that, right? Like they have hard deadlines and hard schedules to get out brand new versions for WDTC that are going to integrate with brand new versions of devices that have to come out at particular times. They're not like typical project schedules, like, yeah, whatever, if it slips a week, no big deal. Uh, this is like, oh no, if it slips a week, we can't show it at WWDC. That's terrible. Right. Or even worse, if if uh, they have to miss a, a product cycle, they just can't release the iPhone because it's too broken, because Swift doesn't work right. You know, if that had happened, then mm-hmm. pretty much Apple is is finished as a company. So they they had to be they had to be very conservative, right? Yeah, if it ain't if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Right. Yeah, I think I mean some of the things that I've heard to to justify Swift's existence is that a lot of other people people coming from other languages didn't like the square brackets and the you know the the at symbol all over the place and and uh, kind of the way the Western messaging works compared to how it works in other uh, um, languages that had adopted dot syntax and stuff like that like this stuff we started to get into Objective C two point um, and a lot of people, I think the, the, uh, some of the things I've heard is that Swift was sort of introduced as a language to make it easier for people to write code for iOS devices. Right. So, but I, we've all talked about this for the last, you know, three years that, uh, that the frameworks have, are still for the most part in Objective-C. We're starting to see some new, you know, stuff with the grand renaming in 3.0 Swift, um, that some classes are being changed over and some are being brought over into uh swift in different structures right uh structs in some cases classes in others right more protocol oriented for those of us who've been around objective c a long time it's it does tend to be a, a challenge right especially when you have to switch back and forth from one language to another right so. yeah 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 you know I've, I've heard exactly the same thing that you just mentioned to him about how they want to make it more appealing to more developers and bring more developers onto the platform but I, I always kind of wondered about the, the logic of that. It, it, it seems to me there was never any lack of people working on on iOS, right? Right. right. Yeah. Um, no. It's it's not it's not like people were or saying you know there's just not enough apps in the App Store. <laughs> so yeah, we need to get more out there. Yeah, yeah. I'm not really sure. Um, what, well, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure sure whether that although that may be the actual reason. I'm not sure that was really a, a good reason. Uh, at the same time, I also feel like Objective-C was kind of the thing that set iOS people apart from the rest of the world, right? It was kind of a something unique that we had to ourselves, and we've kind of lost some of that, I think. You think? You don't think Swift is unique in its own right? 
No, I mean, for exactly the same reason, because they tried to make it seem like oh, all the other languages yeah. that are out there. Well, did they make, or or were they adopting some of the some of the um, paradigms that those other languages offered that Objective C doesn't have, right? Well, sure, sure, they were doing that. Yeah, but but in doing that, they've made the language more similar to those languages. Yeah, uh, yeah for yeah. for better or worse. I'm not making a judgment there. I'm just saying that that it, yeah, the the uh, the dividing line between you know just some just a, a, say a web developer in, in Python or Java or something like that. And right. someone doing iOS is is a lot more gray now, uh, which maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. I wonder if the timing of this article too comes, or this blog post comes from the the fact that Steve or Chris Latner has just left, um, because he does mention that at one point here in the in the article. He starts off with a quote by Latner saying that you know you can still continue to use C and C sharp, C plus plus. Object to see, uh, they're not planning on dropping anything, any of those, anytime soon. Um, and he wondered if uh, somewhere in the article, just re- was reading here that um, the fact that he's just left the company, what does that say about it? And I think a lot of people are maybe scratching their heads over that one. You know, yeah. what does that mean when the well, champion of the, of it, the language leaves? Right. <laughs> it's a really good question, especially because of how siloed Apple is, where probably ninety-five percent of Apple, and I'm pulling that number out of out of the air didn't even know that Swift existed until right, we knew right. it, right? So, so it was kind of a, a probably a shock to the system when it came out. And if if you do lose the main champion, uh, whatever internal resistance there is to Swift uh, suddenly gets potentially a lot stronger. And it's an important point about the fact that I don't, I don't think a lot of people realize that Apple is as siloed as it is. I mean... And and that's just the way that's part of their their method for controlling the release cycles and things like that, right? Where they sort of more you have people who specialize in in one technology over another, you know they kind of, they kind of work on a, on a specific area and that serves a bunch of other departments, but they don't they can't really talk about you know like if you and I worked at different parts of Apple, we couldn't talk about what we did at Apple. And that's that's sort of a known thing, but. It, to us in 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 the in the community, but I don't think a lot of people realize that that it's not that App, Apple is quite secretive within its own walls, right? Oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got I've got lots of friends who work at Apple in the area here, and and not only can they not talk about what they do, they can't talk about anything else that they might happen to know about in the company. So it's right. basically you know you're talking to a black hole if you if you ask about anything about Apple. Right, right. Yeah, my understanding is that they end up asking each other a lot of questions about like, have you been disclosed? Like, do you, do you <laughs> have you been disclosed? Like, I mean, and you work at the company, right? It's not like, Oh, let me go write a blog post about this. It's like, Oh, I, I'm not sure if you're actually allowed to know this because you know, the more people who know it, the more likely it is that the secret gets out sort of thing. So I, I could definitely understand uh, some of that aspect in terms of keeping secrets. Like, I mean, if we look at sort of what ends up happening with, with Apple stuff, this, like the rumors we just talked about, like that's physical stuff that somebody somewhere has to have seen, right? Like, and it's people like in, in different countries and in different companies that like have altogether different uh, motivations. Whereas uh, how often do we see anything leak out related to the software side of things? Very no, far and few yeah. between, right? Like tons of stuff comes out and we're like, Oh, he smokes. We didn't, we didn't know about that until it's shown is you can, you can hide software behind things like disclosure agreements or, internal disclosure policies. Yeah, Carol and I were talking about that yesterday. Like, it used to be that when you went down to an announcement at Apple, we kind of had a very vague idea 
what was going to come out. But these days, when a new product, new piece of hardware is coming out, we know the size, we know the screens, we know what almost right down to even what they're going to charge for it, right? So mm-hmm. it certainly has changed on that side, on the hardware side, right? But but I want to ask you guys a question. I know we talked about this before on the show, and, and I'm still a little fuzzy on it. But um, one of the one of the points he makes here in the article is about ABI stable, stability. Can you guys explain what ABI is to those driving at home in their cars? For time, you've talked about this before. I think. Okay, sure. <laughs> so the ABI uh, application binary interface. Uh, think of it very similar. You have uh, APIs, right? You have uh, application programming interface that says, like, you verily, this is contractually what is going to happen. That um, this function takes in two integers and returns a float or a string, for example. It's not all that different from that on the binary side. It's just like, hey, like this particular code is going to be guaranteed to um, interoperate, you know, going forth, uh, regardless of uh, how the source code itself and the internal mechanisms of that might change, right? So, like, think about Swift, how uh, every app that includes Swift is just a little bit more, um, I wouldn't say bloated, but it's definitely a little bit heavier uh, because it has to include the Swift runtime in every app, right? Because your app may be, you know, Swift 3.1, mine might be Swift 2.3, and heaven almighty, there might be people running Swift, you know, 1.2 or something. I don't even know if that's possible with the latest version of iOS. But they they have to do that because they can't depend on having that linkage to the system at runtime saying like, hey, I want to run this function that does whatever, to, you know, gives in two integers, returns a float. Like they, they just can't guarantee that that will be there. An example, so that this uh, AVI ABI sta- uh, stability is something that people have been looking for because it will one let us trim down our apps, and then two it'll make it so that you can do things like um, produce closed source Swift uh, frameworks, for example, proprietary fr- frameworks, because you know that when your code after it's been compiled to say you know not just source code but turns into like bits that's you know zeros and ones the machine code that says you know i want to move this into the register i want to do that i want to do this other thing it will continue to to run and everything will will point in the right direction Mm -hmm. that's it in kind of a nutshell and i've I've probably hand waved way too much to make it actually probably false (laughs) (laughs) and to try to and to try to simplify it sort of thing um but conceptually that that's that's what it'll be but that's another advantage that objective c would have over swift right oh yeah i mean um objective c not only has it been rel- you know, relatively stable over the past couple of decades, but it's also been very um, backwards compatible, which is why we have right. the weirdo right. block syntax, because they didn't want to break anything else that was there. Oh, I see. Right. Right. <laughs> as, as opposed to Swift, where, you know, yes, it is kind of uh, troubling when you're like, holy smokes, how the heck do I, you know, declare this closure parameter? It has changed, you know, from version to version. Um, but that's because they have not guaranteed source compatibility, nor have they guaranteed, you know, the, the ABI compatibility. Uh, we're saying, hey, uh, this is sort of like a, an experimental slash beta language that, we, you know, when you join on, you, you get tons of advantages. But the sort of disadvantage you, you take on is like, well, it means that stuff is going to change underneath you. And with every version of Swift, they've tried to make that less and less, that less and less the case, right, where there's like not huge uh migrations necessarily um but until they hit that that point of source compatibility and of abi compatibility it's definitely going to be quite frothy for lack of a better word like in the, in the waters for for swift and i think recently as as of this recording they they talked about pushing out you know, from 4.0 
the goal of having um, ABI compatibility. So I think hmm. the the true stability for Swift will be you know yet another year from now, sort of thing. It, it was sort of sort of going to be this year. The fact that uh, what was it the concurrency bits like the the asynchronous type stuff promises and other type things were hypothetically going to be proposed for for four and they didn't make it. They might be in five. I think now we're, I would look more towards Swift six probably. So two and a half years from now being, you know, where we can say, oh, it's, it's pretty stable. And just like I can write or I can take objective C code from three years ago and it'll run just as fine today as it did then. Maybe at that point we'll be able to say, ah, oh, you barely, I could take really old Swift code and still run it without you know, having to run it through a migrator. Right. Check out the article and let us know what you think. All right. Okay. We'll put it in the show notes. All right. So the big announcement last Thursday, I think it was Thursday, right? Was WWDC 2017 moving to San Jose. So have you guys, I posted a thing here quickly, just sort of a roundup article that I found while we were talking. Um, Mark and I went down and Mark showed me where the, uh, the, uh, convention center is, uh, and it's not the Jose hand something. It's, uh, what is it? It's called McHenry convention center. Yeah. Not the Jose McHenry center. It's San Jose. McHenry, <laughs> McHenry, McHenry. It sounds like Henry McHenry. Convention Center. Right. But you've been to a number of times, haven't you, Mark? I have been there many, many times. Yeah, there's lots of conventions there. So it's able to house all of us crazy uh, iOS developers? Oh, for sure. Yeah. it's. I think it's bigger than than uh, than Moscone West, uh, which is where WWDC generally is. Uh, of course, it's not bigger than the full Moscone, but, but uh, WWDC has never used the full Moscone. Macworld used to, but it's been a few years since then. I mean, it was definitely kind of a surprise because it's really early in the year um for them to to make the announcement right. um of course the venue has changed we know that one thing that hasn't changed is that it's going to be a lottery which uh as of this writing what is this monday march 27th at 10 a.m pacific time you'll be able to throw down your 1600 dollars and, and hope you get picked let's see they came up with the the new uh, i mean the the invitation type thing you know usually there's a lot of criminology that goes into this and and i'm baffled by this one i i honestly can't figure out what it is i mean so what you're literally seeing is you see um sort of like a bird's eye view of, of tons of people they're they're collaborating they're doing all sorts of different activities um and they're shaped in such a way that you see the out the ghost outline of the apple logo okay oh, right, uh, yeah <laughs> that's like the surface level but i've seen people trying to look like well are they spelling letters like like alphabet soup you know uh is there a pattern to the colors i i have no idea um in past years it's definitely been a little bit easier to figure out what the the theme was going to be but this one the only commonality i can see is that everybody is is outside and then there's a lot of uh, activities going on so um maybe the apple watch will be um really hot Hypothetically, I could see something like a like a mesh networking activity sort of thing going on. So make sure everybody's uh, being able to collaborate. I I don't know. I'm lost. <laughs> it certainly has got that emoji feel to it, right? So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a bird's eye view as well. It it looks vaguely reminiscent, and I may be uh, grasping at straws here, but vaguely reminiscent of what you might see if you were flying over the new campus. Although the shape is wrong, it's it's the shape of the apple. But if, imagine that's just a ring. You get a bunch of people standing around a big courtyard in the middle. Okay, maybe that's a stretch. Hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be anything. I mean, uh, was it 20, 2015? Everybody was pretty sure that that invitation, which had what, like uh, a whole bunch of 
of squares or, or rounded off squares. And it said like the center of everything, I think is what it said. And I think it was pretty clear that that was intended to be the Apple TV, which uh, for reasons got delayed and ended up debuting several months later. And, you know, mm. as far as I can tell, I think that's why they gave everybody and their brother the um, the dev kits, you know, for like a dollar rather than charging <laughs> full price. Cause it was like probably intended to be swag bag type stuff that was going to show up. You get your T, mm. you know, not your t-shirt, get your jacket and get your Apple TV dev kit. This one, I, I don't know. I can't tell, but it is at the very least, it is interesting that it's in San Jose. I think as, uh, as folks have mentioned, it's going to be much more convenient for the Apple engineers to take part in this. So hopefully that means, um, we'll be able to see more of that engagement of them you know, during the conference, uh, either at sessions or at labs. Um, I'm hoping that maybe there'll be extended labs, right? Uh, extended hours or, or, or broaden the number of, uh, people that they can have there since rather than having that one engineer from, you know, core graphics, they can have like the whole team from core graphics show up and it isn't quite as onerous on that one individual to, to deal with it. You can always go fight the fires back in the office if they need to and let somebody else take over. Some interesting notes here in the article about uh, the fact that WWDC sold out for the first time in 2008. And uh, I remember 2013 pretty well. It sold out in two minutes. And then they started the lottery system in 2014. And uh, ever since then, we've only had two lucky winners out of this group <laughs> go to WWDC in the lottery system, right? So ticket, And it's funny that it's interesting that, uh, like you said, the announcement's usually in April. And this time it's... Uh, come way back into February, and it says you have to have been a registered developer at f as of 5.30 on February 16 when they made the announcement, I guess, right? So, or no, that was the day they made the announcement, but but still, that, that kind of cuts back a whole bunch of people trying to join the join the ranks uh, earlier than that, right? So, Sure, because, like, you think about it before, you could sort of game the system because they don't prevent, you know, individuals from submitting from several different um team accounts let's say right yeah. like yeah uh, i think a pretty common one is to have your own personal one submit through that and then if you're working through uh, some client or some uh you know company account some enterprise account let's say um for who you work for then you could submit through that too and i think the year that i went in 2015 that's exactly what i did yeah i could have hypothetically paid is it 1600 1600 times two um i figured it was really unlikely that that was going to stick uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Apple lets you transfer company ones to other people in your company. So I could have just yeah, given they, they up. They don't to... say that officially, but they, it's been done. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would have just taken my personal one and then used the other one for like a teammate. And, and that would have been just mm -hmm. fine. So by the way, if you look at the article that uh, we'll link in the show notes uh, under expected announcements, the first thing they say under iOS 11 is Apple is rumored to be working on a, on a social networking app. That's similar to mm. Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram. So I bet you that's what they're referring to in this picture, because maybe, maybe. we're looking at a social network in this picture. It's just it just happens to be an in-person one. But Apple's tried to do that before. They had that. Remember, they had a thing with iTunes where they had that um, you uh, follow your music people. Yeah, called ping, ping. Yeah, that yep, that ping. that was a complete <laughs> failure. Yeah, do more recently they that? had. I, I do I do remember that when that panel was there in in iTunes. Right. And more recently, they had the the connect thing for uh, musicians in Apple Music. Mm -hmm. Right, but right. you know, I think that was a little too specific for to for for something like for something to catch on. Right, it, it, it's it, it specifically was 
to connect you with people who like the same kind of music that you like and to the artists who make that music. So it's, right. it, it wasn't anywhere like Facebook is, where, which is connect with all your friends. So I think that's, that's a big part of the reason why I failed. It, it, it just it, it didn't really have any real reason to exist. Or maybe Apple's going to fix Facebook. Maybe they're going to buy <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> I don't know. So if, if I had to, to bet on her, I think they're overestimating the social networking sort of phrase here. Like, I do think that sharing of, of content, like, you know, video and, and images and doodles and stuff like that will be a key part of this supposed app. I don't think it will be like a, oh, I go and, and sign up for it. I think it'll be more like, oh, this app is there. I want to do, you know, like an Instagram filter or a Snapchat, you know, people like will alter their face in real time sort of thing. I think you go in, you, you, you take the video, you, you, you do the picture and the doodle or whatever, and then you can very seamlessly share it onto, you know, at least through the messages app and probably through your, you know, the connections, the contacts that you have. And it probably ends up storing that, that stuff in like your photo stream or, you know, just nakedly into iCloud and it's easy to share sort of thing. So when you, when I send you the, the messages app stuff, I'm really just sending you like a link to that and it goes and pulls that down from the web, you know, from the, the cloud, the iCloud storage. Or along those lines, maybe it'll just be a real super powered extension that lets you share from share any kind of content from any app just by using this, the existing extension mechanism, share it into any other app at any time and store it on, <laughs> on the web. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that, I could yeah. see that working too. Yeah. And using CloudKit, CloudKit of course. It's, it's all stored in CloudKit. Right. Same, I was going to say, maybe they use Realm instead. <laughs> <laughs> that I kind of <laughs> doubt, but you never know. <laughs> but yeah, now, now that you say the social networking thing, that does kind of make it uh, make sense. Weird. What are they up to now? Yep. First it's a phone, and then it's an iPad, and yep. Yep. So final word on uh, on WBC. I think everybody should come see w- uh, see San Jose. It's it's actually not a bad place. Tim, what do you say? The the first ten people who come to to uh, WBC in San Jose with a with a MTJC T shirt will buy them a beer or give them a mug or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. We'll give him a yeah, sticker anyway. We'll give him a yep. sticker. Yep. <laughs> so Jaime, why don't you tell us about the Swift Cloud Workshop Hack Day? Yeah, this was something I just attended this past uh, this past weekend. It was a one day unconference focused on building um, apps and you know cloud services with Swift. It was hosted by and at Amazon. Um, although the the other sort of bits of sponsors were uh, beyond Amazon were uh, Google and um, IBM. And uh, it was definitely really, really cool. It was a perfectly, you know, free conference. It went all day from like 9 a.m. till, you know, 6 or 7. And then we had, you know, uh, after hours, happy hour type stuff with whoever wanted to show up. So the main organizers were Vanya K from uh, a TPM from Amazon, uh, David Akun, who you might have seen as a developer ang- uh, evangelist from IBM, and Tim Burks, who works at Google as a um, member of the API services platform team. And it was really kind of cool to see the the different sessions. Uh, some of it was kind of more like quick lecture type stuff, like you might see it like a WWDC, where like, hey, here's a topic, like the Open APIs and Swift topic, which was 
talking about the spec that they're trying to come up with for defining a, a standard way to have a language agnostic description of REST APIs. Um, if you've seen Swagger, kind of started out in that area and seeing how that applies to Swift, especially because they're looking to use some of that capability to to build up these easy ways so that if you, you go into somebody's um, you know consulting area or you go into some area of your every company you're not like fully flabbergasted because there's you know 20 different ways at which these apis are all defined you can actually have like a very regular definition that everybody could read and more importantly have client and server code definition uh, generated from that regular spec ibm showed off a lot of its uh, different products uh, and services like uh, there was a Katura and Angular demonstration, sort of seeing like how those two play together. As well, there was Katura and Swift Query with a K, K-U-E-R-Y. And I don't think we've talked about that on this show, but it's a uh, a pluggable SQL database driver that focuses on being Swifty and as of right now integrates with Postgres and SQLite. So if you look at it, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, what is it called? Is it FMDB? Yeah, Flying Meat Database. Um, you know, that, that integration you have over, uh, SQLite. And, and I kind of liked it a lot because it, it actually reminded me a lot of like, uh, link L I N Q from Microsoft that they have for, for .NET C sharp, at least where rather than running like raw naked strings, you're, you're using these sort of almost like prepared statements, but it's, it's like you're, you're writing swift, right. When you're writing this thing where you can say, Hey, like I want to select you know, these three columns from this database table, and I want to group them by this attribute, and I want to count the number that are within there that uh, qualify under some region. So uh, maybe in the future, we'll end up talking about Swift Query. I'm, I'm not dealing with, with SQL databases myself, but I could see where if you're using SQLite um, in your app, or more probably if you're using Swift on the server, you're going to need some sort of database driver to connect to your database. And Postgres is pretty popular for that. Amazon showed off uh, how to create, and they had like a little, like really high paced, uh, fast paced workshop on creating an Alexa skill with uh, their AWS Lambda service. That's their serverless architecture type thing. So rather than, uh, let's say, spinning up an instance of uh, like an EC2 instance that like, oh, I'm going to go install this server software on there. And it's continuously running, waiting and hoping and begging for somebody to to come knocking on the door and, and execute a request. For Lambda, um, that stuff is fired up fresh and new as a request comes in. Um, so that that's kind of an interesting service. And being able to create a um, Amazon uh, Alexa skill was, was really cool. Uh, again, it was only like, one hour out of uh, an eight hour day. So we couldn't go too far into it, but it was pretty satisfying to to see that work, especially because they had the um, echosim.io website. And as long as you log in with your Amazon credentials, it will take in stuff from the microphone and give you a little simulated version of the echo, which is, is pretty cool. IBM also showed off its uh, blue mix stuff where blue mix is IBM sort of equivalent of of like AWS. So they've got all sorts of things in there, you know, like Watson, uh, IBM Watson integration, you know, the, um, what is it like the artificial intelligence machine learning type bit that that does. Uh, what we got shown was how to 
use the Swift starter. So it's almost like a, almost like a recipe type thing where like, like for a couple of clicks, you can get Katura server up and running with a little example website. And I was actually pretty impressed with like how everything was based on the web. So uh, at this workshop, I got a chance to sort of see how Amazon's web interface works for AWS and how Google's cloud um, cloud platform stuff works because we had a different example for that. And then how IBM Blue Mix stuff works. And I don't know enough uh, about each one of these to sort of say where the the pros and cons go and like how advanced each of these is. But at least from a, you know, it demos really well and it's easy to do in a workshop sort of thing. I felt like the IBM Blue Mix stuff was leaps and bounds ahead because everything was, was doable through the web. And as they pointed out, like if you wanted to use an iPad to start up this Katira server, and if you wanted to go in and, and change things and do uh, commits into that instance of Git and build and deploy, it's all right there. And, and IBM's was like really slick. I could see, oh yeah, I'm building and deploying. I can see exactly the commits that are going to be deployed. And I can see a little bit of progress as it's stepping through the, the uh, various steps to do that. Whereas with like Google's and, and Amazon's services, I was like, oh, there's a spinny wheel. Is, is it stuck? I don't know. I'm in, I'm in a conference room and, and conference room <laughs> Wi-Fi could be terrible. So I'm just going to wait here for a little bit before I, I try resetting it. And another thing that I heard about from, from IBM's bit was OpenWhisk, which is their competitor to AWS Lambda. So it's their serverless architecture type thing. I'd have to say that the the ability for these folks to pull this thing together was was really cool. Like it's, this is the first edition of this and it came together with, uh, it says here, 150 RSVPs in less than one month. And that one month came up because a month ago, there was a random bit of Twitter conversation that happened and these three individuals pulled this thing together. And I was super impressed just like with the level of, of uh, like community that they, they got out of it. It was um, quite a variety of people, all sorts of different companies, all sorts of different locations that came from, uh, of course, Seattle, San Francisco was represented, uh, Austin, Texas, uh, London, and Berlin, some folks showing up from there. And uh, the other bit of kudos here was that 45% of the attendees were women, which I don't think I've ever seen before at a non-women in tech event. And this is a uh, crazy guy with long hair, pointy, spiky hair, and, and most of the shots wearing an orange t-shirt. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I, I definitely stick out. So we'll have the, the link in the show notes. Uh, I definitely stick out in the, uh, the event pictures for sure. Uh, so it's like, you know, where's Waldo? You, you can go find me in there. Where's, yeah. Where's Jaime? Yeah. I see you in the in line for the coffee picture. I think it's coffee. And of course, just like I asked about the realm, uh, event that you guys went to the quick rundown of swag. So, you know, if you went and talked to the recruiters for some companies, or in some cases they had handouts with different challenges to go through, you could get different stuff. So I talked to Amazon's recruiters and got a, um, a beanie that has their, uh, pecky mascot. That's the peculiar fellow. It's like a little orange creature. Let's say if you, if you know anybody who like works at Amazon, you probably have seen this like on some of their gear because it's sort of like for their largely for their internal folks. Yeah. It's like an internal mascot sort of thing. And it's usually they give it out to like employees for like the company picnic type stuff. Um, stickers, uh, Amazon had a, a pecky sticker that's made to look like the Hulk. I have no idea why it is, but it looks really good. I'm definitely going to shove one of those on my laptop because it looks cool. Uh, Google had one for its Google cloud, 
um, initiative. And um, I also picked up a um, Android figurine. So like, you know, the little um, Android, normally it's, it's a green robot. In this case, there's a whole series of these that are made to look like different things. And they had three different scientists. Um, one was uh, Charles Darwin, you know, uh, who wrote about natural selection. Another was a lady whose name escapes me, but she helped discover the bits for uh, that DNA. led to uh, the double helix uh, for DNA. And uh, George Washington Carver, which is the one that I ended up picking, uh, well-renowned botanist. I'm pretty sure he uh, introduced peanut butter to the world, if I'm not mistaken. But it looked mm-hmm. really cool, so I picked up one of those too. So, so all in all, I think it was really great to see, like, um, you know, we were talking about WWDC, and and one of the great things about WWDC traditionally, uh, as it's been in San Francisco, is there's just like so many companies that hold events, either related to WWDC viewing parties or um, you know meetup events going on there uh, in and around the conference. We don't really get quite as much of that up here in Seattle. So I was definitely appreciative of, of this sort of thing because it definitely felt a lot like that. It was really cool. Cool. So our next piece is about the, um, I guess the latest update of 10.3 is now deleting. If you delete your app from the uh, from your phone, it also deletes the keychain entry items that are normally saved in the keychain forever. I guess it's just sort of Apple's cleaning up after themselves. But um, some... A little bit of fervor on the uh, on Twitter because a few developers use those uh, keychain entries to check things, like whether or not somebody's actually deleted the deleted a trial version of their app and uh, a way of che- sort of cheating to get a free another free extension of the trial. Um, if the keychain gets emptied out, they can get around that. Um, and another, I think James Thompson had said that he uses uh, that keychain entry to tell whether somebody has previously purchased the. Um, the app uh, pcalc uh, I think um, in the past and when they got to reinstall they get the benefit of of uh, doing that getting that access back so what do you guys think about the loss of the keychain entries so if it's if it's really going to happen uh, it's very bad uh, but I would say don't panic yet because this kind of thing has happened before uh, it, it especially with the simulator there were there were times in the past where from version to version the, the keychain would get deleted and then would come right. back. So it may just be a beta issue at this point. Uh, this is a beta, they're talking about a beta version of the software and it may be fine in the final version. So I, I wouldn't panic yet. Although if it's, if it's real, it'll be pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I do remember, I do recall recently, like um, maybe a version or two ago that, uh, keychain like uh, uh like stored um, passwords and stuff like that that i was relying on in the simulator disappeared like you said mm-hmm. right yep yeah yep. or it wouldn't wouldn't do an automatic login kind of thing if you'd stored that in your app yeah interesting stuff I, I have to tell you as a user i'm really annoyed when we go from one version to another of an app and they don't maintain my login credentials and have to re-enter them again so that happens quite a lot in a lot of apps so right and i, I am kind of curious to know if this is if this is a bug which it very well could be um, and if it is a bug, hopefully they fix it. If it's a decision to sort of change the behavior, I think I disagree a lot with the idea of doing it on a minor point release, you know, 10.3. Mm-hmm. I think it would be more appropriate to make that sort of thing, uh, make that sort of change in iOS 11 and, and announce it at WWC. They've certainly done it before, like when they changed the the way that the privacy and permissions handling works for like the camera and the microphone and so forth, where they 
require you to put in the the reason why you want to use that thing. I think they could have done that here. And this uh, this paragraph here from one of the forum posts, um, the conclusion from the Apple staff member is that the persistence of the keychain data across apps uh, across apps reinstalls is a side effect of the implementation rather than a feature uh, the behavior should not be relied upon. Um, that might very well be true as well. Um, it could have just been sort of accidental um, hmm. if this was not part of the you know explicit contract that this is the way it would work. Again, I even if that was you know strictly true that like when you go in and read like how this stuff works, it never says like oh by the way this will hang around you know between app reinstalled. I think it's been so long that people have relied on this feature that I would be very if I was the API writer, I would be very hesitant to to change the the de facto behavior um, even if it wasn't you know, strictly part of the contract, just because I wouldn't want to blow up so many different users of my of my API. So again, this is the sort of thing I would definitely prefer they change for iOS 11 rather than a minor point release. All right, let's go to picks. Uh, Jaime, do you have any picks? I do, too. One is more of a tip, and the other is uh, more of a regular pick that I can normally do. Uh, the first one is a tip that comes out of uh, Thomas Hanning's website. In this blog post, uh, he talks about two useful log messages that you could have uh, in your app when you're trying to you know, debug things. I'm going to focus on just one of them because I found it a little bit more useful for me. And that is uh, for the simulator, understanding where your app location is and, and, and like where your documents directory and stuff is. In this case, he's proposing like, hey, you know, in a really convenient place, like, you know, application delegate, you have the did finish launching with options and you kind of know that everything's ready to roll. Um, let's say you've you've taken on like a, a brand new app. You have no idea, or it's not, it's new to you, but it's a pre-existing app. You have no idea where it happens to put some things. And maybe even sometimes you're looking to, to debug some things and you know, go grab a, uh, the SQLite file for core data, for example, just using something little nice here, this little snippet, uh, it happens to be in Swift, but you can, you know, write it in Objective-C. I've certainly done that before of using the file manager to grab the URLs for the document directory and the user domain mask, uh, take that first one and print the path right to the console. And it will take you all the way through and you can use it in terminal. You can go through finder. Um, I've certainly done that before, you know, ever since they started having sort of the somewhat more opaque sort of references as to where these things go, it's been a little bit harder to figure out. It's like, Holy smokes. I was like, okay, I know I did this in a 4S and I know I did this other thing in a 5C simulator and I want to check both of them and compare where the heck are they. This is sort of like the poor man's route of getting to that uh, that content. I often see Thomas Hanning's stuff on uh, Twitter and I often think I should pick it and post it into the show notes. Um, he does a lot of, he explores a lot of small uh, little things that people could take advantage of and, and learn about. Like, you know, he posted one recently on merge sorts and uh you know so i, I regularly stop by his site to, you know it's usually prompted by a tweet to go and look and see what he's what he's written about stuff so some interesting stuff check out check out this guy's blog um as well so i actually have used this the same trick myself and i would just recommend to people that you make sure that you take that out before putting it into a production <laughs> version just in case, because you, you don't want to give any would-be hacker any extra little help finding stuff inside your app. Right, right. And and uh, just unlocking stuff to the console might just do that. Yes, mm -hmm. definitely very important. Yeah, you throw this under, like, 
an if debug sort of guard or something or, or yep. whatever the, the Swift right. equivalent is. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your second pick or tip or whatever? I mean, it's more of a pick and it's uh, for your entertainment, but I think it, it kind of pulls into some of the things we talked about in this, this episode and in previous episodes. It's uh, on iMore. They have a post about the relatively new um, iPad pro ads are very short ads are like 15 seconds, each one of these. And there's, I don't know, four of them that sort of cover um, the hows and whys of the iPad pro with the premise being that they've taken what are supposed to be, uh, and I don't know if they are real tweets. They, they look reasonably real to me. It tweets that say something like, you know, an iPad pro is not even close to being a computer. And then within the 15 seconds, they say, Oh, well, look, you, you can add this keyboard. You can have this side by side. You can do Excel and all these other things. Like for example, this one guy asked like, is Microsoft word on the Apple iPad? It's like, yeah, actually it is. And another one, you know, Hey, I've got slow Wi-Fi at home. Guess I'm studying at the gym. And they say, well, you could get an iPad pro and get it with the LTE and you'd be just as connected and not have to worry about that. Uh, and, and similarly, they, they talk about like, Hey, my, my laptop has the nastiest virus and I'm terrified. And it's like, Oh, Hey, you, know, you don't get those on the iPad pro. It's all great and safe and easy to use. So I think they're really trying to address the, you know, what's the business sort of proposition. What's the, the reason for this product to exist and sort of really explaining in terms of customer needs and wants and confusion in some cases as to you know, why the iPad pro is the device for them. I thought these are neat. It doesn't take you very long to, to review these. They're, they're done really well. Um, they're not like cringy or anything. Um, <laughs> and, and I think hopefully it portends towards Apple spending, uh, a little bit more, you know, tender loving care on the iPad pro or the iPad in general as a, as a platform. But I think we talked about it maybe two episodes ago that the, um, the brand new sales are, you know, on the decline, uh, still very high in terms of, you know, general numbers, like absolute numbers, but, but on decline. And hopefully this is one of those you know, first steps that Apple's taking to address that. And hopefully, hopefully crossing my fingers here, this will mean that for WWDC, we'll see more iPad specific stuff coming out to, to make that more interesting as a platform for developers and for users, of course, of yeah. the platforms. It's interesting. Greg and I were looking at the iPad Pro keyboard uh, together in, in um, when we were at the uh, store in Union Square in San Francisco the other day, and it was well lit, and you could actually see that the the surface of the of the iPad Pro keyboard is kind of a webbed material, So, and the keys feel very natural. Very, They don't feel rubbery or plastic or whatever. They actually feel uh, kind of mechanical in a sense. Um, but it's interesting, again, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, it's, it's interesting that Apple takes on the iPad, they position it against uh, as a, a super, like a pro computer, um, and yet Microsoft with the Surface is always trying to attack the MacBook Pro, the, the MacBook lines, right? So it's kind of a strange way of, um, don't, you, don't you guys see that as odd in a sense, as I do? Yeah, I think I think they're coming at it from, from sort of opposite directions, Yeah, where the the surface is really more of a laptop replacement. It, it pretty much is right. a, a more direct MacBook pro competitor that also happens to have touch capabilities. And, and in right. some cases uh, for not the surface, but for other competitors, they'll have like, uh, is it Lenovo or LG or something that does the yoga one that like spins around and, and converts into more traditional tablet without having to separate out like a, a separate peripheral. Like it's actually still, um, connected to there to try to give you a little bit more uh, options. And I think that's that's one 
thing, right? Where they're starting from the premise of like, this is a laptop that also happens to do touch. And the iPad is coming more from, this is a touch device that can also happen to do things you would consider uh, laptop class type stuff. Like uh, right, one of these right. videos they show like, Hey, on one side they had what it was like Microsoft Excel, you know, a, a productivity app specific, well, recognizable productivity app uh, in split screen with, I don't know, iMessage or something. I, I forget what the other one was. It was like either a Twitter feed or some other sort of, you know, communication type mechanism that, oh, I can I can still be communicating with somebody at the same time I'm trying to update these this spreadsheet. I mean, I don't think it's that dissimilar from like if, if you look at uh, competitors coming from opposite directions, uh, going way out of this industry, uh, look at Starbucks, you know, premium coffee, right? Um, generally about four to $5 coffee. And look at uh, McDonald's, which started out with, <laughs> like, dollar coffee, right? And each of them have gone in the opposite direction where McDonald's continues to have dollar coffee, but they're also starting to add, you know, two and three, almost $4 sort of premium coffees to try to broaden the appeal uh, for their product. And Starbucks has, you know, still continued to have the 4 and $5 coffee, but they're starting to add cheaper, 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 like, drip coffee to try to get bring in a broader audience is like, yeah, I'll stop at Starbucks on the way rather than going to McDonald's for my, like, you know, truck stop coffee is essentially what it is. Are they doing that? Seattle? I haven't seen that yet. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, they've yeah, always had drip coffee, but it was never cheap, like say McDonald's coffee. So that'll be, that's an interesting thing. I'll have to look at that. Yeah. I mean, they're, again, they're, they're like starting at opposite ends. They're trying to come together. Like, yep. um, it's a little bit more obvious on the McDonald's side, for the physical stores themselves where, you know, it wasn't that long ago they were in these terribly garish colors and, you know, much more happy meal and Ronald McDonald and grimace, you know, whimsical kids colors to now you look at them. The, the McCafe concept is trying to be its best to, to kind of look like Starbucks cafe type stuff where there's a lot of neutral colors, a lot of more uh, sophisticated sort of design to it. Uh, without straying too far away from the the friendliness of McDonald's brand, and you know, not trying to be uh, maybe quite as uh, hoity-toity as, as Starbucks as it might be, and I think that's what's happening here with it, Tim. To, to address your question about like where Apple and Microsoft are coming from, right? That, that both of them are starting right. at opposite ends of the spectrum and trying to come in towards the middle to cover more and more of the potential user base. Right. Right. Hmm. All right. That is it. That's it. it is. All right. So, Jaime, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where would they look? I am on Twitter as at Dev of the Hair. And Mark, if people want to get a hold of you? Mark R at Smapsoft.com or at Smapsoft. Okay, cool. And I am Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine, and that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items we talked about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website. And if you can, please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press that recommend button. All of these things help others find out about the show, and we really appreciate your help in spreading the word. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. 
You can also support the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. I mean, you want a mug? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, send me your address. Or just come down to San Jose. Whichever is <laughs> easier. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, man, funny you should mention that. Like, we'll end up uh, topic-wise talking about WWDC, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you can wait till June, then I'll send it to you. <laughs> I'm not even sure. That, like, arguably, this is from a, like, just WWDC and, and not hanging out with... Uh, uh, with with folks standpoint this this could arguably be a really good one for me to wait it out and see what happens and see how san jose deals with an influx of people like that <laughs> yeah why, why are you that? basing that on are you basing that on uh, the release notes podcast uh several folks have, have talked about stuff and like i don't i don't know if uh, san jose is like colorado springs which is what it sounded like where everything closes at 9 p.m sort of thing so it does sort of beg the question of like, oh, hey, we're all here. Oh, what are we all going to do? We can't even go hang out at a bar because no, nothing's open sort of thing. Or or everything's mashed with like 5,000 people trying to go into a 200-person bar. There's a little bit of that in downtown, uh, which is where the convention center is. But uh, I don't know. It, you know, San Jose is not a small town. I mean, I, people kind of have a, a bad impression of it. Though. And, and Tim, you can attest to this. It's actually a pretty big place. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, over a million people live in San Jose proper, so it's a pretty big, actually, a pretty mm-hmm. big city. It's a bigger city than San Francisco, and, uh, and it's actually the third biggest city in California behind LA and San Diego. So, I don't know. I wouldn't sell it short. There's, no, I wasn't trying to. I just all the time. I haven't been to that area, so I didn't know. Yeah. Like, oh, you go to San Francisco, like there's all these bars open, um, and there's all yeah. these um, events related to WWDC for that. So I was kind of wondering how that was going to be taken care of um now that it's in san jose yeah we'll see yeah we'll see. Mm-hmm. i'm sure all the party hosts will have to sort of sort out where they're gonna you know have their events and things like that so there must be some spaces like that around uh san jose it's, like you said it's quite big yeah